Amen. All right. You guys have a seat. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would open to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and just as uh, a, a, a word of warning slash note, next week we're going to jump back in the book of Judges together. Judges chapter 13, fox tails tied together and killing animals and Samson, and it's going to be great, all right? So you might want to get a head start in reading a little bit of Judges this week or talking about it with those that you do life with. It should be a good time. So we're together. My name is Matt, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at Cherrydale. I'll bring you greetings from the cornfields of Iowa, just where I was last week. And I was reminded of God's grace to our church as I facilitated uh, church meetings as three churches in rural Iowa considered merging together as one new congregation, and they asked me to come help guide that conversation and provide some insight for that process, since we've got a little firsthand experience here, and I was reminded as um, I led them, who did not do it quite as gracefully as we did, of God's kindness to our church and your humility through this process, and so if you are here, I guess we're going on four years ago now, since that went down, I thank you uh, once again for your humility and grace through that process. God has been faithful, and many who are in these seats this morning don't even remember a merger process. And so we are so thankful for God's grace in sending you to us this morning. We are finishing a series around our defining vision as a church, which is to multiply disciples to God's glory, and as we started a new school year, we as pastors felt it wise to consider afresh just what we are after when we say multiplying disciples. This is a real challenge because it is easy for us to not exactly know what we're after, even with a phrase like that. Like, imagine with me for a minute, if uh, you had the glorious opportunity to spend tomorrow with the president of a car manufacturing company, and he invited you to his office tomorrow at 8 a.m., and you rolled up into the parking lot to have a prime space out front marked visitor, and he greeted you in the parking lot with his best smile on, took you to his office where the diplomas and frames lined the corner office that stared out over the city. And throughout the morning, he took you of a tour of this car manufacturing company. You saw all the machines and people, and it was immaculate and spotless. They were crushing it. But the problem is, by the time you hit the end of the day, you had not seen a car. So you ask the gentleman at the car manufacturing company, Sir, this has all been phenomenal, but can I see one of your cars? Now, if this president of a car manufacturing company could not take you into the finished product and show you how all these systems and people and factory produced a car that you'd actually want to drive, you would be right to critique, well, what's the point of all this other stuff if you haven't produced a car? 
Okay? In the same way, you would be right to ask questions about a church's systems and people and building and structure and all the rest if at the end of the day we couldn't say, here's disciples that are being made. Here's what this church is producing. Here's why all these systems and people and buildings and teaching and songs and all of this is going into to make a finished product that we think reflects God's intention for his church. To arrive at a biblical definition for the car, or the disciple, as it were here, we would want to, to make sure three things were in place. We would want to make sure that that definition was biblical, that it was clearly derived from the teachings of Scripture, that we weren't front-loading it with all our ideas of what God's people would look like. Two, we would want to make sure that it was contextual, that it actually represented God's people here in Greenville, South Carolina, at this time and at this place. And then thirdly, we would want to make sure that whatever we were driving after, whatever the car was, that it was memorable, that it was sticky for us. Biblical, contextual, and memorable. That's what I want to do with us this morning, is attempt to run after defining the disciple in a way that could create some shared language for us so that we knew what we were trying to create in the first place. And this is critically important because uh, imagine, as we do around here often, I preach a decent sermon on disciple-making. And at the end of the sermon, you're all aggressively head-nodding, yes, you know, I'm in. That's what I want to be, and I want to make other disciples. Here's the problem. We're all going to load that language with our own presuppositions about how the best way to get to that end goal is and what it should look like. So if you're a person in the congregation this morning and you have been deeply impacted by God through the course of your life, through uh, the teaching of scriptures and sermons from pulpits like, like this, then you're going to presuppose that the best way to make a disciple is give them more sermons, Right? Start a tapes ministry around here. Y'all remember the old tapes? Min- All right, so we don't have cassette tapes anymore, but just man, figure out how to get as many sermons out as humanly possible because that's what a disciple is, is, someone that sits under the cheek. Or if you're here and you're like, you know what? God's deepest work in me has been through relationships. I had a mentor that sat down with me on Monday over a cup of coffee and taught me the scriptures in that context. You're going to be apt to say, sermons don't really matter all that much. What's most important is that I sit down over a cup of coffee with another individual and that we walk through Scripture and I mentor them to godliness and maturity. What we want to do is take out our cultural or personality presuppositions and load some language that we can all say rightly balances all of that. Mentorship's important. Sermons are important. But we want to create a common language that makes sense of our own presuppositions. And secondly, we want to be able to, here's my desire for our church, I want to be able to have a young 23-year-old come up to me after the service and say, Matt, I trusted Christ this past week. Is there anybody in your church that could teach me to follow Jesus and obey all things he's commanded? And I want to be able to take that 23-year-old and hand them off to a 46-year-old in our church and say, yes, I got a host of people that would love to walk with you over the next year to follow Christ and to obey all things he's commanded because, lo, he's with us always, even to the end of the age. And if we don't have a common language for the car, we can't do that. All right, so that's what we're driving after. We're driving after some common language for the car, and we're going to allow Paul's letter to the church at at, at Colossae 
to frame this for us in this kind of opening prayer that he prays for the church. And quite honestly, I could have uh, given this sermon from a number of different biblical texts because these themes bubble up to the surface throughout the pages of Scripture. We see here one of uh, what is common to Paul writing a letter to a church. This likely a church that at least Paul hasn't served in for an extended period of time. So the kind of church that would be uh, equivalent to you seeing somebody walking on the street of downtown Greenville like, I know that face. I, I know them from somewhere. Okay? This is going to be kind of Paul, like he, he's traveled through here, he's visited them on the way, but he hasn't spent the extended period of time that he did with the church at Ephesus, at, at Ephesus or in some other places. And so he's writing like to the church at Rome where he's never been, and he's giving them somewhat of a, a summary statement of the gospel and his desire for all the churches that have been planted as a result of his disciple-making mission and his co-workers. And we see here in this passage that this disciple-making mission uh, is universal for the church, whether it's one that he's been in, uh, the church at Ephesus, whether it's this church. He's writing some central truths that are, that are applicable universally. So disciple in Ephesus fundamentally doesn't look different than disciple in Colossae. We would see the same. Brandon defined for us a disciple um, three weeks ago as this. Well, I kind of simplified his definition because Brandon's a little smarter than I am, so I simplified it to, to this. A disciple is someone who is being transformed by God to be like Jesus. Someone who is being transformed by God to be like Jesus. I think that rightly emphasizes the fact that this transformation is a work done by God it is not fundamentally a behavior that we're trying to modify and pursue, but it is God by his spirit at work in our lives to transform us to be like Jesus. The question for us this morning is how? What are the means by which he transforms us to be like Jesus? Let's read this entire prayer slash passage together, beginning in verse 3, Colossians 1, verse 3. We always, and here he's speaking about Timothy and other co-workers in the gospel, so we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God 
May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, as is true in all of Paul's introduction, there is a lot packed in there. And as we're attempting to run after a core definition of a disciple, it's easy for me as a communicator, and perhaps even you as a reader and listener, to overcomplicate what Paul speaks of here. And define a disciple in so many different ways that we can't really get a handle for what's going on. So faced with any vision or idea with some level of complexity, true wisdom is found in being able to simplify that complexity. So given a fifth grader writing an essay on cats, pretty simple, right? funny, furry, and demonic, right? I mean, we got three points and this baby's done. Uh, Pretty simple. But if you're trying to write an essay, say, on quantum theory, it's going to take a, a lot of wisdom to be able to take complexity and make it simple. And so that's what I want to attempt to do. There, there's a reason that we have seven-digit phone numbers, Right? Uh, our brains can retain chunks of about that much information. I'm going to test you this morning and give you eight that I think bubble here from the Scripture. So this is going to be for the studs in the room, all right? But I'm going to do it in two-word phrases, so hopefully it's simple for you. We're, we're going to run after what are, the, what are the irreducible minimums of a disciple. If we had to boil it down, what do we see Paul writing. And specifically here, we see him writing to the church. And I think this is a point worth making right at the outset, that whatever we do with disciple-making, disciple-making is meant to be embodied in the context of the local church. There is a reason for which we see Paul's letters being written to gathered assemblies of believers in local churches. With the exception of the pastoral epistles and the book of Philemon, he's writing not to individuals. And the pastoral epistles are written to pastors of local churches, right? And Philemon's an appeal made from a slave master. I mean, it's a very specific internal. But the vast majority of Paul's writing is written to local churches. And so we would say at the outset, whatever we do with disciple-making, the production of cars is meant to happen in the context of a local church community. Rogue discipleship is not a biblical precedent. You, you embody this, cars are made, disciples are made, in the context of a local church, and specifically under the care of pastors whose work in light of Ephesians 4 it is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So if I understand my role, then my fundamental role is to equip you to be really good at disciple-making. I want to equip you for the work of the ministry that God's called you to and then come alongside of you in that process. This church has quite the reputation. Paul speaks of it in verse 3. He thanks God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he prays for them because he's heard 
of their faith in Christ Jesus. This church has a reputation for faith, such that Paul, writing likely from Rome at this point, hears about them. Epaphras brings him greetings and says, this church is doing pretty well. I mean, there's a lot of things to commend here. And this faith in Jesus is clearly not only their initial act of faith, but the ongoing outworking of that faith. First scene, look in verse 4. He's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and, and note this connection, of the love that you have for the saints. So the first thing that Paul's going to bubble up to the surface about this faith, a mark of the disciple-making fervor of this church, is that they have a love for the saints. Now clearly, when Paul is writing of this love, he is talking about more than theoretical love. You, you say you love the brothers and sisters in the church, but rather a concrete manifestation of that love demonstrated in real tangible care for one another, the kind that is seen in Luke's writing in Acts 2 and in Acts 4, the end of both of those chapters, what does Luke do? He shows how the love and the teaching and the breaking of bread spills over into the care that this church has for one another. They sell their, de- their, their goods. They combine them in a way that no one lacks. We see a very tangible, concrete manifestation of the agape love that is demonstrated through the work of Christ. And specifically here, notice that it is love for all of the saints. So here in Colossae, this love is manifest in indiscriminate care for all the brothers and sisters. It is not for those that are like you, but rather it is for all of those who are united in faith in Christ. And so if we were to boil this down to an irreducible minimum, I might say it this way, that a disciple of Jesus lives known. And here's why I would make that connection. There is no way that the church can model this type of love if they do not know one another well enough to know how love should be manifest. They are in community with one another in such a way that love is a tangible expression of their unity in the gospel. And so, as we've said throughout this series, I want you to be listening with two ears this morning. Because first ear is, am I doing this? And second ear is, am I on mission to see other people do this? So our first irreducible minimum is they are people who live known. They live in community with other people. So do you. Do other people know you enough that they would know if you were hurting and in need? Does anybody in this room this morning know you well enough to have prayed for you specifically by name over a care and concern that you have reflected in your life specifically? If not, you are not living known. Do you know other people enough to know how to care for them, how to encourage them? This morning, we do the meet and greet, which I kind of have a love-hate relationship with, right? Kind of feel awkward sometimes, kind of feels forced. But during that meet and greet time, like if you're a regular around Cherrydale, I know it's short and quick, but could you, 
reasonably find somebody else in the room that you could ask about a concrete need, hurt, pain point, prayer that's going on in their life during that space. If not, then I would suggest that all you're doing is church attendance. You're not living in community. Now, obviously, the outworking for us, most specifically, is in small groups. But living in community goes much broader than that, that we would be a people who live known, manifesting a love for the saints. Paul continues in verse 5, because, so they demonstrate this love for one another, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So what does Paul commend about the church? That the gospel is bearing fruit among them. He's going to come back to this in a minute and apply it specifically to concrete actions, like it's bearing fruit, it's changing the way that you act. But here it's specifically mentioned in the expansion of the gospel, that specifically people are coming to faith in Christ in your city and that that's having a spillover effect and the gospel spreading. Other people coming to faith in Christ. The gospel is advancing. Notice he says that the gospel has come to you. You didn't come to it. It came to you. The truth of the gospel came to you. The singular hope that is found in the person and work of Jesus, and that transformed you, and as a result, it's having a spillover effect in the transformation of others in Colossae and around the world. You might Note the contrast, the the bearing fruit, this reproduction, and then increasing this maturity. It's a both and. Bearing fruit in maturity and bearing fruit in increasing. The gospel is going out. So if this is an irreducible mark of disciples in the church, I would suggest this, that they speak boldly. They speak boldly, as we saw two weeks ago. The gospel going forth requires human instruments who are willing to declare the gospel has come to me and that gospel can too come to you. My wife, Sarah, was sharing this story recently in our small group. Some of you know that we sent a young lady from our church to Turkey a few years ago to live among the people in Izmir, and share the gospel. If you get uh, Jill's newsletter, you read this story recently, but I'll read it again just to commend it before you as a testimony of the proclamation of the gospel. Jill writes this, Out of a population of 4 million, there are about 400 believers living in our city. For the math lovers out there, that means only 0.01% of people are Christian here. Knowing this, you can imagine our surprise last week when a college student approached us on the street and asked a very unusual question. Do you know where I can find a church? Ali John and I were having a stressful, busy week gathering all the materials for my annual residence permit renewal. This process can be quite a tax uh, time-consuming hassle, but it's also a necessary evil for living here. As we were walking to the next office, we were both discouraged that this kind of stuff was taking time away from our ministry. And then we met this guy. Al, she changes his name, stopped us and politely asked if there were any churches in the area. 
He explained that he was just in the city of Izmir for a day, and he was looking for Christians to speak with while in town because there isn't a church in his city. We excitedly explained that we were actually Christians, and we would love to set up a time to meet. He told us that he'd been learning about Jesus for a while, and he wanted to become a believer. Later that day, Ali John and our teammate were able to explain the gospel to Al, answer many of his questions, give him a Bible, and even connect him with a Christian family that we know in his own city. Okay? A testimony of the sovereignty of God orchestrating a human relationship in the course of a day. And the thing that we've been talking about in our small group over the course of the past month is how many times is the very same thing happening in the course of our lives and we simply miss it. This isn't a reality that simply manifests in pioneer outlets on the front end of mission. It happens in Greenville, South Carolina, in coffee shops and parks and businesses. So are you the kind of person who is proclaiming the gospel to those that God is ready-made to hear the truth? Are you a sower of gospel seed? Next, he continues, As it also does among you, since the day you heard of it and understood the truth, the grace of God in truth. So the gospel is bearing fruit among them. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul introduces these human instruments, like Epaphras, who is likely the founder or leader within this church, he brings a report to Paul while in Rome on the state of the church, and Paul then writes back this letter. He bubbles to the surface the fact that there are these key players, Epaphras, Paul, and clearly others, who play a leading role in the sending of this church, sending the gospel out from there as an Antioch that we see in the book of Acts. So thirdly, I would suggest this, that disciples... Go strategically. They go strategically. Now, clearly, we see set apart here guys like Paul and Epaphras. And I don't want to diminish the fact that God raises up certain individuals to go. It's common in church vernacular these days to hear uh, people suggest everybody is a missionary. And, And I say, yes, and. Okay? I agree. You are sent on mission. But I also agree that God uniquely and specifically raises up and calls out individuals to go into pioneering areas particularly so that the gospel may be proclaimed. And he hardwires certain people with that ability. And so, as Donnie was sharing last week, there are those in our church who are called out to go to the nations. That doesn't mean we all go to the nations, but it does mean that we all, as disciples of Jesus, play a role in that sending. We are receiving the benefit of the testimony I just shared from Jill. The Spirit brought encouragement to our hearts by His sovereignty in Izmir, Turkey, this morning. You are the recipient of the sending from this church, And in three weeks from now, we'll put the boyers up here and we'll send out another couple who's going to go from this church on strategic mission. And this is something that we're all a part of. That gets manifest specifically in our, we go strategically to the park, we go strategically to our office, we go strategically, but we're invested in sending. 
Okay? Next, fourth, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard it, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul models for us what a disciple looks like by the fact that this very act of thanksgiving is made in the context of prayer. We see throughout Paul's writing these prayer lists that he has where he calls to mind churches and individuals. He has a deep recognition that if the work of the expanse of the gospel is going to happen, it's because of God going, God's sovereign work. And so he is a person of prayer. So if we were to boil down a disciple-making minimum, we would say a disciple is someone who asks aggressively. It's a woman banging on the door. I'm not leaving till you open up. This is the kind of prayer fervor that the cars of the local church manifest. We are a people who ask aggressively. This is not mandating a time or a location, but it is mandating a defined reality. Disciples of Jesus will pray. They will pray. Their life will be a conversational prayer spoken to God and trusting themselves to his mission. Then he zooms into their behavior in verse 10. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is a common phrase for Paul. He does the same thing in Ephesians 4. Transition, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, if you're, if you're thinking about, like, that language probably sits on some of you a little bit strange. Worthy? I'm not worthy. Walk worthy? You're exactly right. Were it not for the grace of God demonstrated through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are inherently unworthy, but do not devalue the significance of what the imputed righteousness of Jesus did on your behalf. When you trusted in faith in Jesus Christ, he took you, God took you from unworthy and declared you before the Father holy. And you live out that worthiness that isn't yours, it's given to you as a grace gift from a very good God. And how do we live worthy? We live obedient to the good works that God has put before us. We live it, we live it out. Our actions are worthy, not because they're good, but because God has declared us worthy in Christ, and therefore we can give our lives to good things that actually matter. And friends, if you're here this morning, and your fundamental disposition as you're sitting in those seats is you don't feel worthy, Let me appeal to you in the name of Christ that you are absolutely right about your state of unworthiness before God. And God would be just and fit to turn his back on you and damn you forever to a state of unworthiness. But because of his great love with which he loved us in Christ Jesus, he demonstrated his grace to us by not turning his back on us in judgment, but turning his face to us in love. 
And so that shame and guilt that you feel can be placed on Christ, fully satisfied on the cross, and you can actually walk with your head up, your eyes looking forward, walking worthy because of the work of God through Christ Jesus. And if you haven't had that experience, if you live life with your head down, cowering in shame and guilt, this morning, would you turn and trust in Christ? the wrath-bearer, shame-bearer, sin-substitute for you. And those of us who have trusted in that finished work can live with our eyes up, walking worthy in the good works that he's already prepared in advance that we should walk in. So fifth, you just, you walk worthy. You walk worthy. Next, bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. This fruit bearing here is specific to the good works that God has called this church to do. The good things that God has put before them. And as we'll see in this letter and in other places going forward, this is often said in the context of suffering and perseverance. Fruit bearing is not going to be easy. In fact, Jesus said, if you're going to bear fruit, you're going to die. Want to bear fruit, you be a grain that falls to the ground and dies. You want to be my disciple? Die to yourself, take up your cross, follow after me. So a disciple of Jesus is going to be someone who sacrifices generously. They're the kind of person that recognizes that fruit-bearing only comes through death. And so they give of themselves so that God could bear fruit in and through them. Then, a phrase that's consistent throughout this passage, they increase in the knowledge of God. Increase in the knowledge of God. For some of you, when I set out our illustration this morning of cars, that was the first thing. There's somebody that knows God from his word, and that is absolutely true. I would suggest to you that it is an aspect of a total package, that we can be a one-legged stool that gets incredibly out of sorts and disoriented if everything is knowledge, but certainly a key aspect is growth and knowledge. That we would be the kind of people, if I were to reduce it to two, that we'd be a kind of people that consume Scripture. What does a disciple do? They consume Scripture. What is the means by which we increase in the knowledge of God? It isn't a random dream you had last night at 11 o'clock, right? That is not how you grow in the knowledge of God. You grow in the knowledge of God by consuming Scripture in the context of the local church. Community, around you. This is the means by which God has chosen to reveal himself. And so Paul writes consistently to these churches to guard themselves from false teaching from within, protect themselves from false teaching from without, and he says God has declared this is a truth that's been given to you. And this is an amazing reality that the sovereign God of the universe has chosen to, spoke, to speak. He's made himself knowable. Paul's point is it's not this difficult, like God's out there somewhere and you got to do all these kind of... He said he's made himself knowable through Christ. You can have personal knowledge of this sovereign God as he's revealed himself in his word. And this knowledge, consuming scripture, requires that we place ourselves in environments that are conducive to spiritual growth, that we learn to act and think 
biblically. And so around here, things like our core classes, hopefully the teaching of the Word on Sunday mornings, frames for us the necessity of consuming Scripture on your own. This is why I spend so much time. Effective exposition trains the hearers to read the Bible well on their own. This isn't a magic trick. Like if you walk out feeling like I did something that you could never do, I have failed you. I don't want you to be wowed by some biblical knowledge or wisdom or insider magic code. That is actually, that is making complex more complex and it's unhelpful. I want to make complex simple in a way that you can sit down, feast on the scriptures for yourself. Consume the Bible. Be a Berean. Test everything. Hold to what is good. Allow the Spirit of God to teach you to consume the Word of God in the context of the church of God. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love the way Paul ends this prayer because he, tr- he, he reminds them of the, the emphasis of celebrating grace. And this is the way I would end this frame of what is the car. It is a celebration of God's grace. He speaks of a plan of salvation initiated by God the Father and accomplished by God the Son, which does something stunning in verse 12. It qualifies you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. That language is so helpful. God qualifies you for the inheritance. Friends, by no means hear me suggesting this morning that the first seven realities on this list somehow qualify you to be a recipient of God's grace. That fundamentally undermines the concept of grace. God qualifies us He calls us to be holy because he is holy, and then he qualifies us to do that very thing by giving us a righteousness that we do not deserve and indwelling us by the power of his spirit. Let's imagine if I am appointed a professor at a university, this is my identity, this is who I am, then I'm naturally going to do things. I'm going to teach classes and grade papers, and in turn, I'm going to be recognized as something. The students are going to say, you're a professor. But if I walk in without an identity of a professor and just start teaching classes and grading papers and calling students to respect me as a professor, I, I, I act out of my identity that I haven't received. And in the same way, you can fake all of the behaviors on this list, and if they do not naturally flow out of an identity that you've been given, then you're a hypocrite. And you're running to earning righteousness of your own 
that is meant to be a grace gift given to you by Christ. So celebrate grace. So there you have it. A disciple is someone who is being transformed by God to be like Jesus. And what are those someones doing? They're living known. They're speaking boldly. They're going strategically. They're asking aggressively. They're walking worthy. They're sacrificing generously. They're consuming scripture. And they're celebrating grace. Would those metrics be a definition of the pursuit that you are after this coming week? Notice, I, I, I did not intend to communicate that you're crushing it in every one of these areas. We are all a work in progress. But a true disciple of Jesus and dwelt by his spirit is going to be increasingly convicted of a lack in these areas, repenting where they fall short, and trusting Christ for meaningful growth in these areas. And, and this is perhaps the bigger challenge, they are giving of themselves to see people who are currently cut off from God and his church experiencing this very same reality. They are sowing seeds of the gospel such that there are people right now who aren't doing any of these things because they've never experienced grace, who are going to come to receive God's grace through Christ by the power of his spirit this year, and they're going to end this year looking back and saying, I'm a car, right? God did something in me. He made a disciple. Friends, this is an incredibly big vision. Church attendance is easy. Disciple making in such a way that disciples make disciples is a grand vision. It'll take you the rest of your life. You're going to have a lot of starts and stops. You're going to swing and miss a ton. I don't know about you, but that kind of vision can get me out of bed on Monday morning. I can, I can get up with some excitement and zeal knowing that God by his spirit is working these things into me because he's actually promised that he's going to conform me to the image of his son and glorify me forever. So in Christ, I can wake up in the morning with excitement to see how God is going to accomplish these things in my life this week. And then I can give myself to some mission to see some other people have that same experience. And here's my problem. If I don't have a vision that big, life gets really, really boring and I cave in on myself. It's a bit like the difference in, uh, so we're, we're creeping up on Christmas, I know it's hard to believe, like Thursday night around Christmas, Thursday night before Christmas, taking a trip to the mall. Blah, right? I mean, who wants to do, it's like 20 minutes from my house, and I dread every quarter mile, you know? get to the stoplight on Haywood Road, and you're trying to take a left into Haywood, and it's like, am I ever going to do this? This is terrible. Let's just get Starbucks and go home. Don't want to do it, okay? Versus summer, and our family's taking a trip to the beach, and I'm going to watch my kids play in the surf, and we're going to have fun, and I'm going to get to read a book, and somebody might see a shark. I might catch one. It's going to be awesome. That kind of vision, even, you know, traffic jam on 95 heading south, right? 
I endure that far better than I do holiday traffic at the mall because I've got a vision that's compelling enough for me to persevere. Friends, if you are living a vision of a holiday at the mall, can I invite you to a vision of summer at the beach? Could I call you to give your life for something that's big enough to get out of bed for? And could I lead our church, along with other pastors, to be the type of community that's actually running after something that's going to live on long after we are all dead and gone until Jesus comes back? Let's pray and entrust ourselves to him, to that great mission as we conclude our time in the Word this morning. Our God, we bow before you in thanks that in, in so many ways the, the letter that we read this morning is being played out in Greenville, South Carolina a couple of thousand years later that your gospel is increasing and it's bearing fruit here among us and we ask that that would exceed our expectations in the days ahead. Would you remind us of the scope of your mission, the beauty, the complexity, the majesty of what you've called us to, and the glorious hope that says that you're actually going to accomplish it. Your spirit goes with us in this work. Would you be so kind as to get our eyes up to that mission, call us out to that mission, and allow us to see fruit from that mission as we trust you to do what only you can do. We ask for Christ's good name. Amen.